well, these are the medical professionals, and if they say it's okay, then maybe it's okay. But then you have the other part of your brain, the common sense part that says, this is not okay. I'm Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, founder of Grapevine Health and your host of the Grapevine Health Podcast, a podcast highlighting stories, health insights, and experiences of community members. We started this podcast because too often discussions and decision-making about health and the healthcare system don't include perspectives from the people we serve. So listeners, if you have a personal story or an experience from working in the community or on the front lines of healthcare, contact us and we might have you on the show. Today, I'm talking to Nikki Johnson, who shares a story about why it's critical to have advocates in healthcare. Hi, Nikki. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm glad we're connected. I understand you have quite a few stories to tell us about how terrible our healthcare system is. <laughs> so, <laughs> can't wait to get into it with you. Can you introduce yourself and tell people um, a bit about yourself? Yes. Um, my name is Nikki Johnson Ahorlu, and I spend most of my days trying to understand how to address racism in schools, so specifically the school of prison pipeline and issues of racism and bias in our public safety system um, with a particular focus on police officers. Well, I understand um, recently during the pandemic and even before you've had some encounters with the healthcare system uh, that left you frustrated. Do you want to tell us a story? Yeah. So I had a recent one with a friend. I had a friend who needed to, she's actually my neighbor. She needed to have surgery. She fell and she broke her wrist and she needed to have surgery. And she was called on a Wednesday evening at 5 p.m. to say by the surgeon or the surgeon schedulers to say, hey, we have a spot for you tomorrow. Can you come and have your surgery tomorrow? So of course she's scrambling to get things together, to get a ride. Um, And she asked them, you know, do I need, what do I need after this surgery? And they said, you just need someone to drive you home. That's it. Um, And so she asked me to do that and I agreed. Now because of COVID, you know, you can't really be in the hospital with anyone. You can't be in the room. You can't really be in the waiting room. So that means that you don't have advocates. You know, you're there by yourself. I get a call from the nurse saying that it's time to pick her up and that I need to take care of her meds. Um, And they start telling me about the opioid she's going to be on and Narcan in case she overdoses. And it sounds very scary and very overwhelming. And something that I, I felt like I wanted more information about, but nobody had time. They were transferring me and so on and so forth. And in passing, very matter-of-factly, they said to me, oh, yeah, and by the way, she has sleep apnea. And so with the medication, she may stop breathing. So you should definitely try and wake her up every three to four hours. And I said, oh, I don't, because I don't live with her. You know, we don't live with her. I don't live with her. Um, and this sounds serious. Oh, no. Just, does she have a neighbor? Just tell the neighbor to knock on the door every three to four hours, and it'll be fine. And so th- at this point, there's a part of your brain that says, 
well, these are the medical professionals, and if they say it's okay, then maybe it's okay. But then you have the other part of your brain, the common sense part that says, this is not okay. This sounds crazy. So I said, I'm not comfortable with that. And they said, well, just call her. I said that. I'm not comfortable with that. What if she doesn't hear the phone? What if she doesn't wake up? What if she stops breathing in between? It'll be fine. And I said, can I please speak to someone? a supervisor or someone. And so she said, well, I'm not a nurse. Let me put her nurse on the phone, puts her nurse on the phone. And the nurse starts telling me how, yeah, yeah, she has sleep apnea. Didn't you know this? Didn't the primary care physician, you know, tell you all that someone needs to spend the night with her? And I said, I'm pretty sure they didn't. I know her. She would have asked. But not only that, I don't, this to me sounds like even if I were able to stay with her tonight, which I probably could figure out, this sounds like she needs more care than I'm able to provide. That's my biggest concern. Not, you know, who can stay with her or not. And they were like, well, someone should have told her. I was like, that doesn't solve the problem now. That doesn't solve the problem now. This is negligent to me. I don't care who should have told her who shouldn't have. Right now you have someone who you're telling me that she could stop breathing and that the remedy for that is to call her every three to four hours. That sounds to me like someone, you're being negligent. Her surgeon's being, someone's being negligent, and I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with picking her up right now. Oh, well, okay, let me talk to my manager, and I'll call you back. So I'm starting to freak out because I'm scared, and I don't know if what I just did was good enough, and I'm not there. So I start, I call my husband to just check. Am I crazy? You know, these are medical professionals. He's like, that doesn't sound right. I call someone who I know is a nurse's assistant. And I said, this is what they're telling me. Is this normal? Should I not? Am I freaking out? And she was like, this, no, that, that doesn't sound okay. And I think even three to four hours is too long of a window. They need to keep her. I said, I asked them if they can keep her. They said, we're outpatient. Well, we don't keep patients. We're outpatient. So, no, we can't keep her. So I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so stressed. What do I do? 30 minutes goes by. No one calls me back. I said, I'm going to call them back. So I call them back, and the nurse comes on, and she gives me the same story. Well, her, someone should have told her, and we're outpatient. And I make my case again. She, it seems like the care she needs is beyond what I am able to provide, what anyone is able to provide. This sounds negligent to me. Your aftercare plan does not sound appropriate. It doesn't sound adequate. You need to keep her in the hospital where we're all outpatient. Well, there has to be some type of system where you could transfer her to a hospital. Like that has to exist. What happens when the patient needs more than outpatient care can provide? What do you do then? Well, I don't know if her insurance, you know, she starts going on to this thing. And she said, well, I talked to her and she said she has plenty of family members and they'd be more than happy to call her every three to four hours. Now that's tricky, right? Because did she say that? Also, she just got out of surgery. So I don't even know how close, you know, is she with it? And what did you say to her? Did you say, oh, do you have people who could check on you every now and then? Or did you say to her, you have sleep apnea, you might stop breathing. So, you need, uh, you know, so I play a very dramatic card and I'm like, uh, I spoke to her family and they're outraged <laughs> at your negligence. They will not be a party to this plan. And, uh, you know, I start turning up the drama 
and they said, okay, we're, I'm going to, we have everybody here. We're still talking about it. Get off the phone with her. And I'm like, I'm not there. And I'm the, advocating for her on the phone doesn't seem to be good enough right now. So what am I going to do? And I'm so grateful that I have people to call um, who are critical, who are not afraid to advocate, who will push you to advocate. Um, because I think it's easy to say, well, they're the doctors and they wouldn't tell you this if it weren't the case or you're causing too much trouble or you're being a troublemaker. So I call my coworker and I tell her, listen, this is what's happening. And I think I'm going to just refuse to pick her up. And I feel emotional saying this because it feels like I'm being a bad friend. I even feel emotional saying it right now. <laughs> That's your, that was your solution to force them to do something. So if she didn't have yeah. a ride, then they would have to help her. That's what I was thinking. Was that logical? I didn't know, right? I was like, this is the only card I think I can play. I'm not there. So I think if they call me back, I'm going to say I refuse to pick her up. And then I tried to call my mom, but she didn't pick up. Um, but then right at that moment, they called back and said, we're going to keep her for the night. Oh. Um, but they did release her the next day and the problem still remained. But I wasn't, I didn't have the opportunity to advocate again. What did you learn from this whole experience? It's not safe to be in the hospital by yourself. I think it's not safe to not have an advocate. I think it is, it is always difficult to push back against the experts, right? And generally as a black woman, if you push back, you know, <laughs> you're angry, you're hysterical, you know, so you are priming those stereotypes. I was on the phone, so, you know, who knows? And then I felt powerless at this point because I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna get them to keep her. And I didn't get them to keep her the second day. So it was very high risk. Um, the problems still remain, but you have to have an advocate. Did you elevate your complaints or your concerns beyond the immediate care team? Not yet. So she's still home. This was a week ago. And, you know, she still has healing to do after the surgery. She still has to work with these people. Um, I think she's open to complaining and I'm open to helping her. But I think right now, while she's still relying on them for care, it still feels like she's vulnerable. She's worried about, like, will they, I need this surgeon. And if I make him too mad, will he? Like, I'm relying on him right now. Number one. Number two, will I get a bill for that night I spent in the hospital? And when I asked, she, I mean, she, this is what she told me. When she said, when she asked, they said, oh, well, you shouldn't. Which made her think, maybe I will. Yeah. No, and she knows, and I know that whether the insurance will cover it depending on what they say, right? Depending on the rationale they give for why she was kept for a night. And then when it does come time to complain, which I hope she does, and I will assist, there's a whole there's research that has to happen. Who do we complain to? Is it the hospital administrator? Does the surgeon have a boss? Whose call was it? Did the primary care physician mess up? You go to the board? I don't know. Yeah, it's a maze, isn't it? There are a lot of conversations in the health policy space right now about making healthcare more patient-centered. And what you're describing is sounds the opposite of that. 
But I wonder if you've had an experience in the healthcare system uh, in which you felt you got patient-centered care. Do you remember a time like that? No. <laughs> Maybe you remember other times when you got care that wasn't patient-centered. Has it happened to you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember being in graduate school and having terrible like stomach pain and discomfort. And every time I would go to the doctors, one of two things would happen. One, they would tell me to drink more water (laughs) and take more fiber. And I was like, I think it's beyond that. Like, I'm looking at my symptoms. But that was always, you know, no tests were run or anything like that. You felt they weren't taking you seriously? Not at all. And um, if I did get them to refer me to a gastroenterologist, the same thing happened, like no tests were run. They were like, drink more water and more, you know, same thing that the primary care physician would say. So I kind of went in this loop where I was being persistent, like I'm feeling sick and I'm pretty good at the self-care stuff that I could do for myself. If I can do something to heal myself, I'll do it. I'll keep a food diary out. You know, I was doing my due diligence. So I kept going in this loop. I just kept going back to see the doctor. And when I get a new one, I'd hope for something different. Well, one day they um, assigned me to a nurse practitioner and she believed me. She didn't say like, go take fiber or what have you. She believed me. And she, you know, ran her basic test and was like, I didn't find anything, but I know a gastroenterologist that she's good. Like she's going to get to the bottom of it because you know, you don't, you just don't have stomach pain and discomfort for no reason. And she sent me to this woman and she was right. She took me seriously. Uh, she ran the most tests that were ever ran on me for the problem. And she found out that I had three gallstones and I had the surgery to remove them. And then I was okay. Wow. How old were you? 25. Yeah. I suspect they, they wouldn't have, uh, thought you'd have gallstones. It's generally something that happens uh, to older women. So not making excuses, but um, just offering an insight. Yeah. Why, why do you, why do you think we're having these, tr- these struggles with um, healthcare delivery? I think some of it is racial for sure. And Same we more. know, I mean, Black people, particularly Black women, are perceived to be strong, like oxen, <laughs> like ox, you know, <laughs> uh, high tolerance of pain, um, really not to be believed. There's, I think, a bias there. Social science research backs that up. So um, I think for sure, based on the science and based on my experience, that is a thing. You know, so you can say I'm in pain and you won't get the pain meds you need. You won't get, you know, what you need. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is, and I could, this is a stretch, but this is what I think, maybe an over-reliance on tests. Like, well, I ran these five tests that I'm supposed to run and they said everything's fine. Therefore, there is no problem. I send you on your way. Or they're supposed to be these classic textbook symptoms and you don't have them. And this happens to me all the time. If I have a sinus infection or an ear infection, inevitably someone's going to send me home. I know I have it. I have them for, you know, I get them like clockwork every year. 
I don't get a fever. I'm sorry. I just don't. But I will inevitably have doctors say, well, you don't have a fever, so it's not an infection. And then I go home and I suffer for another week and a half. And then I come back and I have all the classic textbook symptoms and they're, oh, now let me give you the meds. So I think it's that. I mean, I remember having debilitating, you know, joint pain and everything was fine. And they said, well, it must mean you're fine. But I'm like, I'm not, I can't pick up my son anymore. I'm not okay. <laughs> I don't have time to drive. I'm not hypochondriac. I don't have time to drive to have these appointments. But they sent me on my way. I ended up going to a holistic doctor who believed me and I'm fine today. I mean, she figured it out. I don't understand the science of how she figured it out, but I know six weeks later, I was like, thank you. Woo. I'm okay. And she believed me. There was no discussion. There was no back and forth. I think those are, are two kind of theories that I, I think are, are why things are challenging. So how did you learn to advocate for yourself in healthcare? And what advice would you give people who are maybe not as good at it as you are? I learned from my mom how to advocate for myself in general. Um, but I remember when she handed over the responsibility of making my own doctor's appointments. Like I remember I was like 16 or 17 and she was like, this is so, no, here's the number. <laughs> here's your medical record number. Like you can do this. And I remember being sick and I call and they said, there's no appointments for the day. Sorry. And she said, oh, they'll get you an appointment. Just call, be more dramatic and forceful and say this. I guarantee you'll get an appointment today. I did what she said, and she's right. I got an appointment that day. So I learned from her. And I also learned when advocating for yourself that it is a risk. So when you do it, you have to be willing to take the risk. Um, and that is a risk of people being upset with you, people judging you, people stereotyping you. So if you're from a group <laughs> that is stereotyped, you're going to prime that stereotype when you push back. And you have to be okay with the possibility that you're wrong or you're going too far. So in the situation with my friend, I was like, am I taking this too seriously? Maybe I can't call her every three to four hours. It's not that big a deal for me to be pushing back this hard. So yeah, I think advocacy means it's okay. You have to be okay with upsetting people. That's a wow. big deal. This is, uh, it's really discouraging to hear. <laughs> it, it makes me think we, not just healthcare providers, but healthcare leaders have to take a look at ourselves. I mean, you have related two stories that made you feel as if speaking up or speaking out would put you in jeopardy of being, you know, mistreated because you're speaking out. And we're here to serve, and, and that should never be the case. So really, really good lessons for us. So I appreciate you sharing these stories with us today, and hopefully people will hear these stories and realize uh, it's time for some introspection in the healthcare system. Yeah. So thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you. I appreciate you. That was Nikki Johnson helping us understand the importance of advocacy in healthcare and offering insights about how we can do better in the care of patients.
Thanks for listening to the Grapevine Health Podcast. Our producer is Nicholas Elias. Please like us on social media. You can find us at Grapevine Health on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Health Grapevine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa, signing off.